Welcome to the Digital Brand Builder Podcast, where we bring you the best growth strategies from the world's experts to help build your business fast. And now, here's your host, Mark Fidelman. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Digital Brand Builder Podcast. And today, joining me is Dory Clark. Dory Clark and I go way back, but we haven't talked in a while, so I'm, I'm very interested in getting caught up with her and she's got a new book coming out and a recognized expert formula, which is what we're going to focus in on today. But before we do, let me turn it over to Dory and to give you a little bit about her extensive background. Amazing, Mark. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks. Thanks so much. Um, my, I'm here because my newest book is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And uh, it's out from Harvard Business Review Press. I teach at Duke and Columbia. I do executive coaching and online courses, including the Recognized Expert course. I know we're going to be talking a bit about the uh, Recognized Expert formula today. And uh, broadly speaking, the way I describe what I do is that I help individuals and companies figure out how to get their message heard in a noisy and crowded environment. I love this topic in particular, Dory. Um, but, you know, the, the, the title of your book kind of threw me because it's, you know, if you're talking about the long game, most people I find, especially millennials and, and even myself, I got to throw myself in this category. Uh, the long game, is, it, there's just so much coming at you short term, it's hard to play that long game. So I know we're going to get into that. Um, but I wanted people to, to kind of recognize that this is the way you've got to play it and you've got to figure out a way and maybe Dory could tell us and maybe you read the book and you could find out how you avoid all those short-term distractions and temptations. So uh, as we get into that, but I, I do want to dive right into our main topic first, Dory, which is recognize expert formula. So that's related, I think, to an influencer becoming an influencer or an expert in your field so that it attracts more business and attention. Am I right so far? You, you are right so far. Absolutely. I, I work with folks who, you know, they're smart, they're good at what they do. They want to get their message heard, but uh, there's, as you know, there are a million things you could be doing and a huge amount of competition. So it's not always clear how to go about it. And so I've spent the past decade really studying the question of what does it mean to get recognized for your expertise so that people seek you out for it? Well, also, you know, what it means, and I've got a little bit of taste of that. I've kind of pulled back the last couple of years, but how you do it, that's the, that's the big problem uh, that most people face is they get into it, they're gung-ho, and then they quickly find that, oh, this isn't going to happen overnight, it takes some time. So I suspect that's what you're doing uh, with your formula is you're teaching uh, the long game with that. Um, and then, you know, there's a few people that hit it off right away. But I, I, for me, most of the time, it, it's, it's, it takes years to develop that. But I, I don't want to speak on your behalf. Can you define what the recognized expert formula is before we dive into it? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I certainly uh, will back up what you're saying, Mark. I mean, in my recognized expert course and community that I run uh, in, in the frequently asked questions section, uh, I, I specifically say, uh, if you are looking to, to achieve short-term returns, don't, don't even bother. This is not the right thing for you. This is not the right place for you. You have to go into it knowing and understanding that this is 
likely going to be a multi-year process. And, you know, my, I, I come from a family, my mom got braces when she was in her fifties and everybody asked her, you know, why, why are you getting braces now? You know, isn't this what kids do? And she said, look, I can be two years older or I can be two years older with straight teeth. And I love that because for all of us, you know, that we have our own equivalent, right? Are you going to be two years older? Or are you going to be two years older with straight teeth? Are you going to be two years older and a recognized expert because you put in the effort that other people weren't willing to do? So briefly, and we could go into much more depth about all of this, but what I've discovered is that there are three key components of becoming a recognized expert, and they are content creation, because you, if you want to be recognized for your ideas, people have to know what your ideas are. Number two is social proof, because we live in a very noisy world. And so people want to get a sense of whether you are credible. And number three, your network, because all of the above is great, but it doesn't matter if you're in a cave. You need to have colleagues and friends who are amplifying your message. Okay. So let, let's start with content creation. How do you know what content to create in order to become an expert in your field? So there's really a couple of pieces to your question, Mark. One that a lot of people get hung up on is the question of where should I be creating content? People often say, but you know, should it be LinkedIn? Should it be Facebook? Should I be blogging? Should I start a podcast? And my answer to that is in some ways, it, it doesn't necessarily even matter. There's a reason that I say content creation rather than you know blogging or whatever, because Ultimately, it's about finding the best way to get your ideas out there. The, I'm relatively platform agnostic because the truth is it depends on your industry because you want to be going where the people are. And it depends on your personal skills and predilections. You know, if you hate writing, if it's boring, if it's terrible for you, then don't force yourself. Don't force yourself to blog. You can start a podcast or do videos or whatever comes more naturally to you. But the key is somehow finding a way to share your ideas in a way that you can do it regularly and feel good about doing it. Now, the second part of your question is about, you know, what are the topics? What should you be writing about? And I would say you can answer it in a couple of ways. The first is at a very basic level, what are the things that people ask you about all the time? What, you know, if you're at a cocktail party and you say, I do blah, 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 what do people want to know? Um, that's a really good starting place. But the second thing is that you can create content ideally that leads your ideal prospect to you, your dream scenario. Now, this obviously does not happen all that often, but the dream scenario you want to optimize for is you write an article and your dream client reads it and says, my God, that is exactly what I need. I'm going to call him right now. And if we can do that, if we can write to the, the topics or the pain points that people are experiencing so that they understand that we do that and that we know what we're talking about, that's really the right place to, uh, to start zoning in. Okay. And when you create that content, you said a lot about writing. Um, you could also do it with podcasts and video, I would assume. Absolutely. Yes. But writing has got an SEO advantage, maybe? These days, writing still has an SEO advantage. I mean, I, I strongly suspect that over time, as we get better at this, as technology gets better at it, that video and audio, uh, it's, it's all going to level out. But um, for the time being, uh, writing 
technically has an SEO advantage, although you can take care of that by providing transcripts and uh, making sure that that's uploaded and then it's it's searchable by uh, Google and other search engines. That's a great point. That, that is a great point. So it, it just do you find that the, I guess it depends on the industry, but that the writing and blogging is pretty saturated at this point, or do you disagree uh, that writing is uh, still a very valuable way to get your to build up your your expertise. I actually still think it's it's very valuable in the sense that uh, there's a couple of factors at play. One is I am very much a fan of where possible writing for high profile publications and. It, you know, it's it's one thing to write on your own blog or to write on LinkedIn. You may worry, and it may be true that it gets the message gets lost in a sea of content. But if you are writing for a publication that other people have heard of, that is simultaneously conferring social proof on you, and so you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. And it also becomes much easier to connect with people and interview them uh, and thereby build your network because you say, oh, well, you know, I'm Mark and I write for blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, God, I've always wanted to be, wanted to be featured in, in that publication. So it, it just makes everything a lot easier. Um, so that, there's certainly an advantage there. Uh, the other piece is that in the early days, at least, your goal isn't necessarily being recognized by the world. Um, the earliest goal that you likely have with regard to your content creation is simply making it easier to close the sale with customers that are already in your pipeline. And so what's really helpful is if somebody is already thinking about doing business with Mark, you know, they start Googling you, they start saying, hmm, well, who is this guy? What's his deal? Let me, let me research him a little bit. And so they're already hunting for you. And then they find your stuff and it helps them make a decision faster in your favor because they say, oh, you know, these posts are great. It's obvious he understands this. Let me go with him instead of the competition. Yeah, that's an, that's an excellent point. And as Dory pointed out before, she and I both wrote for Forbes. I don't know if you still do. Not, not anymore. How about you, buddy? Well, they threw me off. They, they basically said after four years that uh, I was, uh, what did they say? I was producing content with too many influencers or something like that. And, and then uh, get this, just a couple of weeks later, they wanted me to be part of their uh, paid program. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not paying you to write for your publication when I'm averaging you know, 20 to 30,000 views per post. No, thanks. Oh, Forbes. Oh, Forbes. Yes. I no longer write for Forbes because they they have a policy um, which pretty much no other publication that I'm aware of has, including the New York Times, uh, that they said, if you are a writer for Forbes, you are not allowed to be written about in Forbes. And so I had a, I had a book coming out. In fact, the book that featured you stand out. And I wanted to get press for it. And I said, well, this is rather untenable. So let me resign. <laughs> wow. It's, uh, they, they're an interesting group. Anyway, okay. So content creation, I think we've checked that off. Number two, I believe what you said was, was it uh, network was number three. What was number two was part of your formula? Yeah, it was social proof. Social proof. Okay. So my, my big thing about social proof is getting a lot of other people to say you're you're the cool kid or you're the knowledgeable expert now that's a lot harder uh than it sounds but how do you go about doing that 
Yeah, well, certainly what you're talking about is effective. And in fact, you know, every every book that you'll pick up in the bookstore uh, has that principle exemplified. You flip over the back cover and it's got quotes from other authors. And that is a form of social proof. Oh, well, you know, I like this guy. I like this woman. uh, So I'll probably like the author of this book whom they praised. Uh, But there's a variety of different forms of social proof. And so, for instance, if you're in the business world, Social proof could be, I was featured in the following publications that you've heard of, or I write for the pub- these publications that you've heard of. It could be, uh, I have worked at or I have consulted for these Fortune 500 companies that you've heard of, or these really sexy startups. Um, it could be things related to awards that you've won. It could be uh, that you have uh, that you have some special uh, you know trait or characteristic. It could be that you are the head of a professional association or an alumni association or a, a charity. You know any of these things can serve as social proof. Uh, the the way that I like to think about it is if you pick someone who is is really impressive uh, in your field and you read their bio on LinkedIn or on their website. Uh, mostly it is going to be uh, pretty chock full of social proof. And those are the kinds of things that that you want to optimize for. I mean, ideally what you are striving for is to have a bio that someone reads it. You know, they read this, this one paragraph bio and it's like the mic has been dropped. Like, okay, you don't even have to do anymore. You don't have to prove yourself because it is so self-evident that you are credible. You just have established it all right there in one paragraph. Well, how, how, I mean, my Lord, I know how hard you work. That's a, that's a lot of work for most people, right? To get to write for Forbes. You've written for Harvard Business Review, uh, Huffington Post. You, you've been, you've done, done an incredible job of building that yourself. But do you think the average person can do it? And if so, how? Where do they start? I think 100% the average person can do it. And so let me give you a few specific tactics, Mark. So one service that I that I really like, which is free, uh, is called HARO, H-A-R-O. It stands for Help a Reporter Out. And now, obviously, you have to put in the work. You have to be assiduous. But people can sign up for the Help a Reporter Out email list. You get, I think, three emails a day. And this is a service where reporters who are looking for sources will send out messages and, and they compile them. And so it's grouped by fields. So let's say you're in the fashion industry. Uh, a reporter who's working on a story might say, well, I'm looking for a rising Gen Z fashion designer who's based in San Francisco and you know whatever it is. And so some of these things are going to apply to you. Obviously, many of them are not. But if you find something where it's relevant and you can make an intelligent comment, you have the ability to essentially raise your hand and say, yes, I have something to say about it. Here's my take. And it's like a matching service. So I, people that I work with, you know, various clients of mine actually have a fairly high hit rate in terms of connecting with reporters. And they have been able to get quoted in all kinds of prestigious places, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fortune, because they connected with reporters on Harrow and then forevermore in their bio. It's not like you have to be quoted 10 times uh, in USA Today. If you've been quoted in USA Today or the New York Times once, you put it in your bio forever, you know, blah, 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 blah. And Mark has been quoted in publications, including the New York Times. That is a mark of social proof. So that's one way to do it. I think about other things, you know, like universities that you've either guest lectured at or 
taught for. The way that I did it, Mark, this was not, you know, some some magical thing that was handed to me. It's also not something that I got because I studied for a PhD for 10 years. I don't have a PhD. I don't have a, an MBA, but I have taught at many, many top business schools. And the way that I did it was literally just, you know, spending days, making it a project, creating spreadsheets where I reached out cold to university department chairs offering to guest lecture and just finding ways to break in. And by brute force, I was able to build my resume with academic guest lecturing. Wow. So you just wrote all them down and kept writing them and calling them? Is that what you did? Yeah, basically. I mean, obviously, if I had a warm lead or a connection, that's better. And so in some cases, I did. And I was able to get a friend to introduce me if, for instance, a friend had gotten an MBA from that school. But I mean, I think about something like... um, you know, one of the uh, the things, I, you know, I don't have it in my bio really anymore because uh, because now I, I have other things that have eclipsed that. But for a long time, you know, a starting point in my bio was uh, listing all these universities that I had guest lectured at. And so just to give you one example, guest lecturing at Georgetown at the McDonough School of Business, which is, you know, a very, a very good business school. The way that I broke in there, I did not know anyone at Georgetown. Uh, I literally did research online. I found out who the department chair was in the relevant department. And I emailed that person and I said, hey, I, uh, I'm going to be in, in uh, you know, Washington. And, uh, I'd love to, uh, to meet you and, you know, grab a cup of coffee if you'd like, and I'd be happy to guest lecture for your class. If it would be of interest, you know, here's, here's my background. Here's what I do. And I made a connection with that guy and ended up, uh, guest lecturing multiple times for his class. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Uh, I didn't even know that was a thing. That's a great tip. And I assume they, what they look for social proof on you to make sure that you're even capable of teaching in front of a class how do they test the fact that you're an expert or not yeah i mean it, the first you were correct that the first one is the hardest obviously because if you if you say oh well i've previously guest lectured at blah 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 university then uh you know they it's not it's not like they're going to demand to see a tape exactly but they're like oh okay she's already spoken at this place so presumably you know she, she gets it. Presumably she knows how this is done. And so what I would advise people is start with a low hanging fruit. And typically the low hanging fruit is your own alma mater. And uh, so that was the case for me. The very first place that I got experience doing executive ed teaching was I reached out to Smith College Executive Education. That was that was where I did my undergrad. And they had a small executive education program. And they were at least willing to take my call because I was an alumna. I mean, they just mostly I think didn't want to offend me. <laughs> but then when I did the call with them, I was able to uh, to persuade them to give me a chance. And that was how I got the first one. Okay. Well, that's a good tip. Yeah. I, I think my alma mater would let me, they'd probably have armed guards around me, but. Um, <laughs> that's right. I'm joking. Um, okay. So I think we've covered uh, the second part of your formula pretty well. Let's go on to network. And, and this kind of comes, that's probably the only thing that comes naturally to me. Uh, but I know a lot of people, depending on their personality types, just they get anxiety when they think about networking. How can you break this down for even those that uh, are the big I in uh, the personality types that uh, they could still be successful with, with, with networking? 
Yeah, absolutely. It, it is true that for some people, networking is fun. They love it. That's their favorite part. And for other people, it's, it's, that's the one they really dread. Um, so ultimately, what I would say is this. Um, and in fact, in my new book, The Long Game, I have a, a whole chapter about this because I, I think it's just it's an issue for a lot of people. But ultimately, where, where we go wrong, I think, for people who dislike networking, I think largely the problem is that the way that we talk about networking, typically um, in the common parlance, people assume that what we mean is transactional networking or short-term networking. Like, I need a thing, I'm going to get a thing. And I really like to reframe it as just, you know, I mean, first of all, um, that does suck. Like, <laughs> that is kind of terrible. I wouldn't advise anyone to do that kind of networking because it, it, it feels sleazy and it kind of is sleazy. What I tell people to do is like, go make friends. Like, come on, you like making friends, right? And so I say, take, take the business considerations out of it. Go make friends with people that you enjoy. It is actually legitimately fun if you don't have an agenda to connect with other people in your field so that you can talk shop with them and learn from them. That's actually a pretty joyful activity. And even introverts like that. I think that um, oftentimes the, the crucial thing is helping people understand that you can find your own best path to networking. You can find the one that feels comfortable. And so some examples, because I am an introvert myself, I am really not a fan of big sort of amorphous cocktail parties where it's loud and there's 500 people and no one has a name tag. So you don't know who anyone is. I hate that. Uh, so instead I started hosting dinner parties, you know, smaller dinner parties, um, six people, eight people, maximum of 10 people. And that way I can control the guest list. Uh, it's people that I, that I think will enjoy each other and people I want to get to know better. And you can, you can get to know people more deeply that way. So it's a much nicer uh, experience for me. The other great way, frankly, that I that I personally network is by interviewing people. So back when I wrote for Forbes, I was writing, you know, at least five and sometimes up to 10 articles a month. Almost all of them were interviewing people and writing about them. And that was a terrific way to network and, and make that initial connection with them. What, what are the cost of the dinners? Uh, and I assume you paid for them and you you either coordinated the guests or you had an assistant doing it. Was that an expensive proposition or was that pretty affordable? It, it was actually really affordable. And I'll tell you why. Um, you know, I, I, I live in New York City and I was having multiple ones uh, a month. So I, I, so I can tell you, it is, it is always nice and always generous if, uh, if you're taking everybody out. But I was like, you know, damn, I can't afford to do this all the time. <laughs> so what I did instead is, you know, the main thing, I think at least, it's not that you're taking people out. It's that you want to create a seamless experience. And the part that gets awkward, the part that's kind of miserable is like when people haven't thought it through and then it's like, well, now we're going to split the check. And like, you know, Sarah got a salad and Frank got three steaks and a, you know, a Dom Perignon. Like, no, that's, it's just too, too messy. And so I actually located a restaurant, number one, that was, you know, nice, but very affordable. And number two was willing to do separate checks. And so we just let everybody know in advance, hey, going to be nice and clean at separate checks. And so people people came and everybody paid their own way. And, you know, it was not breaking anybody's bank. And uh, it, I think it was a, a enjoyable experience for everyone, I hope. Okay. Well, I mean, it, 
you obviously took advantage of, of, of that for the long term, I would assume. I don't know if you've counted the number of dinners you have, but that's an excellent way, especially if you're the one that's hosting it. Yeah, it's, it's been, I mean, over the years, I would say I'm guesstimating probably 70, 80 dinners or more. Um, I mean, it's hun- hundreds of people, probably close to a thousand people. Wow. And, and anything stand out in terms of business that was developed as a result of those dinners? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I can I can tell you specifically that uh, I mean, you know, lots lots of guests made connections with each other. But one thing that was very helpful to me personally, and you know, to me, this is the story that exemplifies the you never know where this is going to come from. Back in 2015 or early 2016, I co-hosted a dinner with a guy that I knew. He invited half the people. I invited half the people. So the goal is really to cross-pollinate our networks. And so he invited this woman who I met a little bit, and she referred me to an opportunity. She's like, oh, I do this online course with this company. I should really connect you. You'd be good with that. And I was, you know, I, I didn't know. I was like, okay, great. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, introduce me. Perfect. And so, you know, I had no idea if this is going to be good, bad, <laughs> indifferent, but I was happy to try. I was happy to have a conversation. Anyway, this has now gone on to be a multi-year relationship uh, with this company. It, it has brought in well over a million dollars, I think, you know, probably about $1.2 million at this point. And, you know, this is from a woman that, frankly, I hardly know. I mean, we've kept in touch over the years. Like, I've been on her podcast a couple of times. Um, she's come to a couple of my dinners, but have we ever hung out one-on-one? No, you know, we're, we're, we're casual, we're nice and warm, but casual acquaintances. So that's really where the power of networking comes in. That is incredible. What a great story. I mean, so worth it. Totally. Uh, let's go to the next one that I'm very familiar with. Um, and I use the, the Forbes card, the Huffington Post card, whatever card I had at the time in order to interview the people that I wanted to meet and do business with. And we, we have different businesses, you and I, but it's a very similar type of concept where uh, you interview them, you show them a lot of love. I, I was a little critical when I had to be because I wanted to keep it real for the audience, but still they recognized, hey, if I'm in Forbes, you know, no matter what, it's, <laughs> it's probably going to be a good thing. And I was able really to meet with whoever I wanted. Yes. I, the ones I wasn't able to meet with were like really high end politicians, you know, somebody that was in the, at the White House. Uh, but I met with some senators and, and it was a really cool experience, all because I was a card-carrying member of, of Forbes for as long as they allowed me to be. So from that perspective, I, I think that's a, a brilliant strategy. I think it's harder now to get into those uh, publications. I, I could be wrong. But what I've seen, and, and then you could comment on this, is you could also start a YouTube channel, for example, or a podcast, make it popular as fast as you can. And you can do that through advertising. Uh, they don't have to be bots or fake news. I, I use advertising to promote my podcasts and YouTube sh- channels, and it doesn't cost that much money and it's real views. So you could do that, build up a foundation and then reach out to uh, people that um, you want to talk to or interview. It's very effective. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I think your point is well taken, Mark, that, you know, if you, clearly if you are just starting a podcast or a YouTube channel and you want to interview a senator or whoever your target is, 
if they look at it and it's got, you know, 150 views, they're not going to be too impressed. But if you are able to, to build something that has momentum behind it, even if it is an independent YouTube channel or, or a podcast, then you, you really can get good guests the same way that you could if you wrote for a pre-existing high-profile publication. Okay, excellent. And is there any other thing that you could think of that's good? I love the dinner idea. I'm going to use that. Uh, but anything else that you could think of besides the interviewing technique uh, to increase your network organically? Um, how, what about appearing on pop, uh, podcasts or video shows? Um, anything else you could think of? Yeah, well, certainly that's that's a great way of doing it. I mean, ultimately, if you are an introvert, the best way of networking is to get people to come to you, right? Because usually as an introvert, the problem is not like, oh, I hate people. The problem is that it is really awkward to know how to approach people and you may not feel comfortable in these like sort of big, crazy melee-like situations. And so the very best circumstance is if people come up to you and then the, the, the context is set and it doesn't have to be awkward. And so uh, it's, it's really, I think, a useful twist on networking is thinking through, well, how could I get people to come to me? And so doing public speaking, you know, people often say, oh, well, if you're an introvert, you wouldn't want to do public speaking. No, it's different. It's different. Um, shy people don't like to do public speaking. An introvert certainly could, um, but also writing articles, um, being on podcasts, anything that you do that uh, raises your profile and gets, gets people to know who you are and what your ideas are, that is what is likely to get people to come to you because they have a reason to. They say, oh, Mark, I read that article you did. That was so interesting. Can we talk more about it? Oh, you know, this reminds me of XYZ. Let's have a conversation. And it just makes your life and your networking way easier. Okay. And does it, does it work anymore on like Twitter or other social networks like, let's say, Instagram or TikTok? Does it, does it work there as well? Or is it just not long form enough in order to build that kind of network? Well, I, I think it depends what your field is. I mean, Twitter is a really interesting example, for instance, because if you are in journalism or if you are in government, Twitter has really stuck. I think it, it has become uh, a very popular medium in those places. And, you know, if you have a good Twitter game, well, you know, goodness, you, you have a, a competitive advantage there. Like that's because, because all your peers in the industry are on it and they're monitoring it and uh, it, it becomes a tight conversation. But as we know, Twitter user growth has been incredibly stagnant over the years and new people are mostly not joining. And so outside of those industries where everyone is paying very close attention, I think you know, if you're if you're in fashion, I just really can't see how Twitter is a useful medium for you. There's there's other things that are uh, a much better use of your time. So I think it kind of depends on on your ecosystem that you're in. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I've seen some people develop uh, a big audience on TikTok and Instagram, but I, I don't see a lot of it converting into what you're describing as expertise maybe a following and maybe they're able to do some things with that following but the expertise i think is a little bit different anyway okay so we're going to wrap things up so um you know my big takeaway from this is 
you've got a great formula. It's time proven. I like some of the new ideas that you've given. I'm, I expect you've got other ideas in either your course or your book or both uh, that will help people if they're disciplined. And I think that's key is discipline and sticking with it and making sure that you are resonating with that target audience you want to resonate with, which is, which is hard for a lot of people. Uh, then I, I think you, you could become an expert in your field and profit immensely from it. Um, what did I miss there, Dory? Well, thank you, Mark. I, I appreciate it. And yeah, it's it's certainly been my goal. I mean, I literally spent a decade trying to deconstruct this process. I wanted to figure it out for me and I wanted to figure it out so that I could share that knowledge and try to be helpful with other people because I really did not like the idea that there were gatekeepers just obscuring and obfuscating what the actual process is. Uh, I wanted to try to make it a little bit more egalitarian so that the people with the best ideas could win, not just the loudest voices. And so I have really tried as, as best I could to understand that and to unmask the process. And I'll also just mention for people who are interested in thinking this through in terms of their own lives and their own careers, that I developed a free resource, which is actually a scored self-assessment uh, on the, the three parts of becoming a recognized expert. So people can take this self-assessment and actually figure, it out, figure out through their scores where they're strongest and where they're weakest, and consequently, what their action plan should be in terms of where they need to emphasize their activities. And so for anyone that's interested, you can get it for free at doryclark.com toolkit. Excellent. And where could people find you if they want to reach out to you? Yeah, best place to get me, and, and you can you can message me through through the site, is my website, doryclark.com. And I actually have more than 700 free articles available on the site that I've written for places like Harvard Business Review and uh, and Forbes, like Mark used to write for. Did you Were you allowed to take them off those sites and then put them on your own blog? For Forbes... Uh, at least the contract that that I signed back in the day was that they had exclusivity for like a work week, basically, and then after that, you could uh, you could repost them wherever you wanted. Uh, you negotiated better than I did. Okay, so <laughs> with that, Dory, it was a pleasure. Um, come back anytime, especially if there's something else in in the book that you want to talk about, something very specific, because. Uh, I love these very uh, strategic but tactical types of things that uh, we can all learn from. I appreciate it, my man. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Likewise.